Well, it's just me on the track, so you know what that must mean. That's right, it's time for another edition of Riley's Commie Book Club, only two weeks late. Uh, Sorry about that. Life uh, just got in the way a bit, and we had to record a bunch of stuff ahead of time. So, um, you know, I'm uh, a little behind, but I think you're going to really like this one. Uh, This is... The book this week is... This week, this month, is uh, Stafford Beer's Designing Freedom. Uh... Now, Stafford Beer is a really interesting guy. He's like a calf management theorist, but he's like a socialist management theorist. So it's the only business textbook that is ideologically correct to read, and I will be brooking no disagreement. Um, and also, one of the reasons I picked this is it was, uh, well, number one, it was reckoned by, reckoned, recommended by um, Patreon subscriber and uh, listener and friend of the show, Phil McDuff. Um, so I checked it out and thought it was great. And one of the reasons I liked it was that a lot of the books I read or I found myself reading in the past on this series have really been about diagnosing the problems of what is wrong with liberalism, neoliberalism, modernity, postmodernity, whatever you want to call it. Whereas this book is interested in in asking the question, well, okay, great, we know that's all wrong, but what does good look like? And he's not going to say here is how you build a citizen's assembly. He doesn't even necessarily say you must have a citizen's assembly. What Stafford Beer is interested in doing is showing how to think, how to criticize systems and then think about systems and then design institutions in terms of systems rather than in terms of bureaucracies or in terms of targets or whatever. He's interested in stability and replicability and the ways in which institutions actually function. So, I'm going to start today with an extremely long quote from the sixth of the um, lectures in this lecture series, because it was um, not actually written as a book. It was given as six lectures, I believe in Toronto. Um, and this uh, lecture was entitled, uh, The Free Man in the Cybernetic World. Um, because before I go into it, cybernetics is the field of the study of effective organization. So it actually doesn't have much to do necessarily with cyber or computers at all. Like cyber comes from the Greek word for steering or skill in steering, right? So it's about intelligent management of things. So the free man in the cybernetic world. This is going to be a very long quote, but I think it's very good. In the two years of my own work in Chile, I witnessed several attempts to pull the government down. One very serious attempt was made in October 1972. To this, which produced high stress and great difficulties, the Chilean people responded the following March by turning out to the polls and increasing Allende's vote by an amazing 7%. But he was still a minority government, a fact which tied his hands, and now he looked as though he might succeed. It was time to halt the great experiment. As I see it, the rich world would not allow a poor country to use its freedom to design its to use its freedom to design its freedom. The rich world cut off vital supplies except for the armaments which, that eventually reduced La Moneda to a smoking shell. The rich world cut off vital credit so that there was no hard currency except for the illegal flows of it that financed the contrived paralysis of the distribution system to justify the coup. Then let us not say, as we hear said, that Allende reduced his country to chaos and destroyed the economy. 
A system of world forces acting upon Chile reduced his economy to chaos and destroyed him. Allende understood that his country was losing its freedom in the oppressive grip of that external system and went and said as much to the United Nations, to the free world as it likes to call itself, um, heard what he said and waited until his prophetic words were fulfilled. Quote, they would only drag me out of La Moneda and wooden pajamas. At that point, it offered muted protests and set about recognizing the military junta. Thus is freedom lost, not by accident, but as the output of a system designed to curb liberty. My message is that we must redesign the system to produce freedom as an output. If we are inefficient about that, on the grounds that scientific efficiency threatens liberty, then the institutional machinery that acts in our name will fail to prevent the spread of tyranny, war, torture, and oppression. We must speak of the growth of prosperity, but the growth of those four things throughout the world today is yet more real. Let us use love and compassion, let us use joy, and let us use knowledge. These qualities are in us, obscured though we may let them be by the lethal strategies of our dinosaur society. And let us use that acquired and ordered knowledge, science. This too is in our heritage. If it has been seized by power, then seize it back. Expect it of statesmen and politicians who represent us that they should, on our behalf, or demand a new breed of statesmen and politicians. Expect it of educators that they should change the institutions of education not to train crazy apes or start new schools and universities instead. Above all, let us expect it of each other that we find ways to use the power of science in better cause. It is no more sensible to say that we cannot, because ordinary folk do not understand science, as it would be to say we cannot understand sail a boat, because we cannot understand the wind and the sea and the tide race. Man has always navigated these unfathomable waters, and we can do it now. So, Stafford Beer was a British theorist of systems and the management of those systems. He learned about the theories of management of complex systems while in the army, and then continued to apply them as a consultant in civilian life, alternating between work in academia and industry. His approach was called cybernetics. Cybernetics was the discipline sort of founded after a fashion by Norbert Wiener, an American mathematician, who called it the scientific study of control and communication in the animal and the machine. That is to say, the study of how we may become enabled to do things by the application of our rational faculties through technology, where technology refers to enablement. That could be institutional technologies, that could be literal technologies that you hold in your hand, or those could even be the concepts by which we think about things to organize and simplify them. In 1961, Beer launched Sigma, Science and General Management Limited, which he ran in partnership with Roger Edison, but very soon after became an independent consultant, where he most notably worked on the economic command and control systems for Salvador Allende's Socialist Chile, as well as Mexico, Uruguay, and Venezuela. Beer's work in Chile is most notable, where he helped Allende from 1971 to his ouster in 1973 to design a cybernetic control system for the Chilean economy. Allende had to answer a very thorny question. How do we administer and plan a a socialist economy without succumbing to the issues that plagued Stalinist central planning, which was notoriously inflexible? For example, we always talk about this famous issue where a lamp factory was introduced, instructed to produce a certain weight of lamps, so made the lamps out of lead. So we have sort of an extremely domineering central force who... By ver- but m- must some- somehow simplify its planning of the economy, and so requires at great, at, at sort of great threat to the people producing the lamps that a certain weight of lamps is made. The imp- the um, the the incentive on the producer of the lamps is not to do a good job producing the lamps, but instead to save their own skin for the next production cycle. So, how in an era before computers was this actually done? The short answer is. Um, 
is the cybernetic redesign of Chile's economy involved a stringing telex systems up and down the country, connecting factors to one another, logistics providers, distribution centers, and so on, which were all linked up through a central um, hub, the cybernetic control room. And there they would be able to manage demand and supply in real time and offer the nimbleness promised by the price signal, but the justice uh, promised by socialism. Of course, the United States then overthrew Allende and uninstalled Augusto Pinochet, and the project was discontinued because, of course, socialism never works. It's just a failed experiment that's always tried by utopians. Um, of course, for details about Project CyberSense specifically, I actually suggest you listen to 99% Invisible, the podcast by Roman Mars. It's quite famous. It's about design and so on, which had a very short sort of 20, 25 minute episode about the details of this project a while back. And um, we'll post the link to that episode in the description. But for most of this episode, I'd like to talk about Beer's book, uh, the underlying philosophy behind his approach to system design, and how it was more about, it was about more than just looking at ways to plan economies, but about ways to plan how groups of people get things done. And later in his life, uh, Beer actually looked at approaches to the management of firms that were radically democratic and horizontal, something, for example, worker co-ops may have to adopt if they want to get rid of the hierarchical structure of the private firm. So Beer's lecture series, then Designing Freedom, is in many ways a work against technocracy, um, where technocracy is thought of as the rule rule by experts where rule comes where rule comes down with a, without an understanding of how things really go. So the basic of technocracy would be hiring some whiz kid to uh, redesign your factory's processes without ever consulting your workers. Um, and so I'll start with two more quotes sort of out of context, but that I think are really, really sort of really sort of explain what beer has what beers has going on in this book uh, before I get into the theoretical nuts and bolts. So quote the first. For the first time in the history of man, science can do whatever can be exactly specified. So what Beer means by this is if you tell a computer to do something, it can pretty predictably do it without error. However, what he's very interested in is that it really, 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 really matters how you tell the computer to go about the action and what action you intend the computer to take to what end. So this is, if you want to fit this into a more modern criticism, you can look at the ways in which we talk about how um, facial recognition software systems that are trained entirely on white faces are very good at recognizing white people. So the computer is doing exactly what you're specifying it to do, which is recognize white people. You just have to then ask yourself, why are you doing it? Why are you putting these inputs in specifically? It's not the computer's fault in any real sense. So I'll go back. For the first time in the history of man, science can do whatever it can be exactly specified. So exactly is the important word there. Then also for the first time, we do not have to be scientists to understand what can be done. It follows that we are no longer at the mercy of a technocracy, which alone can tell us what to do. Our job is to start specifying. So what this, what this quote essentially is, is a call for the mass mobilization of you might say, information technology in the service of democracy because we no longer need quite so many specialists who are going to administer things on our behalf but without our consent or input, um, quite simply because a computer is a much better mathematician than any civil servant at an, using an abacus. You know, it's no longer necessary to have all of these many people collecting, collating, and processing introduction uh, information on our behalf, quite simply because it can happen in real time. We just have to specify what to do with it. Second, 
The contradiction built into this title, Designing Freedom, is the figure of speech called oxymoron. The freedom we embrace must yet be, quote, in control, meaning it must be stable against shocks. That means that people must endorse the regulatory model at the heart of the viable system in which they partake at every level of recursion. Now, all of these terms are going to be explained, the model, the viable system, and the level of recursion. Um, and I'm going to start with a model. Um, a model is just a, an idealized view of something, right? We know that, say, um, oh, something like uh, gravity. We know that that is, our model of gravity is that, is that things, is that your mental model of gravity as a normal person is that if you drop something, it falls and you stick to the ground. In reality, gravity might be a much more um, difficult and complex thing to understand involving you know, subatomic particles and gravitons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But your model of gravity, the thing that simplifies it so you can understand it is the relationship between small things and big things that small things are attracted to big things, right? Um, and so the model of a system is the way in which we arrange the parts of the system so that they interact with each other and that we can see it sort of all at once. It is a simplified way of looking at it. Um, but what do we mean by a system? And what does it mean to be a system analyst? Um, Beer gives the example of waves in an inlet. Are the waves individual entities that crash into the bay just because they naturally do what they want to do? Well, no. This is an Aristotelian way of looking at the world where you imagine that, as he did, contained within every acorn is the telos or the sort of lifetime goal of becoming an oak tree. But that doesn't make sense. These things aren't necessarily acting in any way we might consider purposive. They haven't decided to become an oak tree. It makes much less sense to think of oak trees as acting purposively against wind and soil. It makes much more sense to think of them as a subsystem that repeats a number of processes that are shaped by a larger system. That system may still yet have a purpose, which leaves a little bit of room for teleology, but rather than um, understanding that contained within every acorn is an oak tree, we can say contained within every acorn is the systemic purpose defined by its genetics to to grow in certain ways, and that those purposes repeated over time and against the repetitions of, of the subsystems around the tree then shape the eventual tree. And it's very difficult for people to think of to think of these things quite simply because you are a system. You have certain purposes. And as a conscious being, you have, remember blindsight, you have basically radically identified with your purposes. So when you look out into the world, it's easy to th see things that are just reflections of you, right? But they're not. They are, they are systems. They are forces interacting with one another, but that don't necessarily exist as individual entities. So you have to think larger. So one of my other favorite, um, favorite uh, analogies, the Chinese room, is also an example of a system. So the room as a system speaks Chinese because there is a... Uh, person inside who doesn't speak Chinese, but who has access to a code book, um, and then a person outside who feeds in symbols. And the person inside looks up in the code book how to respond to those symbols, feeds them back out, and can have a conversation in Chinese without the person actually speaking Chinese. What you think about is the system of the person plus the book of rules plus the note cards that they hand back out. That system speaks Chinese even though no individual element of that system can be said to meaningfully speak Chinese. So, what are systemic states? So, systems are, are rarely different from... Um, uh, sorry, excuse me. Systems are rarely the same from one moment to the next. 
Systems adopt different states at different times, and this is the root of Beer's book. A door, for example, is a system with two states. It is open and it is closed. If you add a lock, it has four states, open and unlocked, closed and unlocked, closed and locked, and most uselessly, open and locked. If you add a mail slot, a cat door, it has yet more states, so states increase exponentially as you add more systems. Um, And the number of states a system can be in is called variety. By adding more and more elements to the door, you increase its variety, which means it, as a system, can cope with a higher number of situations given its purpose. So, let's say I, the person who controls the door, am not currently passing through the door. I'd like nobody else to pass through the door, but I would also like to receive my mail. To have the requisite variety to respond to this requirement, the door needs to be able to be closed and locked, but also to allow mail to pass through unhindered. So, that in, in, in a sense, there need that three different... Um, Three, the system needs to be in a particular state involving three particular um, of its elements. So other systems um, with extremely high variety might include floodplains. So in that, in that variety is something we need to constrain. So let's say we introduce a dam to the river to constrain the variety of the system. The river is restricted from changing its state from not flooded to flooded. Beer would call this dam a variety attenuator. Attenuation meaning limiting, circumscribing, etc. The human, importantly, like I said earlier, is also a system, and we have variety attenuators already built in. You can't see infrared or ultraviolet, and if you could, the world that we've built for ourselves would probably be a lot more confusing and difficult to navigate because of the extra data that isn't really that useful to you. Similarly, the human brain has only a limited amount of processing power. We can only think of so many things at once and to such a degree of effectiveness. Um, so we, ha- we already attenuate the information that we take in because I am not in a state of seeing infrared. I can't perceive the world in infrared. And if I could, I would probably be worse off. I wouldn't be able to function, for example, in society or I have much more difficult time. So there are also variety amplifiers where we increase the number of options available to us. So for example, we can, um, with regard to the river, let's say we build a, a, a city beside a river with a floodplain. We dam we dam the river, so we put in a variety attenuator, so we know that it so we can prevent it from changing from not flooded to flooded. But then we also add, say, um, a bridge over the dam, so that we can build our city um, on both sides of the of the river. So in effect, what we have done is amplified our variety. So. Um, the early human mastery of fire is another example of a variety amplifier because all of a sudden humans can put food into a cooked state as well as the natural uncooked state. So when we manage our systems, what we are trying to do is match the variety of our system with the, re- with the needs presented by the variety of other systems around it and the purpose of the system itself. So like I said, we want our city built on a floodplain to grow, so we build a dam, attenuating the variety of the river, and then use the dam to cross the river to build more city, amplifying the variety of the city planners. This is called the law of requisite variety, where control can only be obtained if the variety of the controller is at least as great as the variety of the situation to be controlled. So let's say um, the... Let's say... How about this? Let's say the, the floodplain we're talking about, the river, let's say... It has two two strengths of flood. So once a year, it floods a bit. And once a year, it floods a lot. 
And if we build a dam to constrain the um, river when it floods a bit, then when it floods a lot, our system will become unstable and the city will be swept away. So in that sense, the river has three states and our dam means we only effectively have two states vis-a-vis the river. Um, So that means we have to increase our variety by building a a stronger dam or perhaps by... um, building flood walls in the city, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what we have to do is cope with the variety of the river by presenting requisite variety of our own. Uh, it's also called Ashby's Law. So a lot, the cybernetics is a very interesting field. But in the above example, we have to remember that the dam doesn't just come in by magic. Social systems are required to put that dam into place. You need builders, resource extractors, and as much as we may not like to admit it, managers keeping people aligned and working together. Because if we just come together in a town meeting that's where the meeting isn't even organized, people just spontaneously walk out into the square and someone declares that there will be a dam and then we can't expect that human effort, no matter how much everyone may want a dam, will just naturally organize itself in that direction in the most efficient way possible without any kind of planning because then we're simply deluding ourselves. But equally, if we think we can also say, well, okay, then what is the difference between a, say, horizontal and democratic organization of people working together to build the dam for the sake of all, or a tyrant coming and enslaving everyone and forcing them to build a dam and then charging um, like a, a toll to go across it, right? That's also a, a workable option from the point of view simply of attenuating the variety of the river and amplifying the variety of the town. So um, we then have to decide, well, under what circumstances and to what ends are we attenuating and amplifying variety? You know, um, and, and what level of stability can we engage in while engaging in more, say, authoritarianism? So one of the examples that uh, Beer uses is imagine two people with a tennis trainer, which is, if you don't know, uh, where a, there is a piece of string strung over a tennis court and then a tennis ball hangs down off of it, Right. And that there are two people sitting across from one another, each of which is holding the string, and their goal is to try to keep the ball stable so that someone can come and practice hitting it. Now, you could say that keeping a ball stable, they can pull forward, they can push forward or pull backward to try and like, you know, keep the string taut. And then you have to deal with, um, say, something like the Stafford Beer says, now imagine a cat comes along, bats the tennis ball, and all of a sudden, your system has to be able to communicate the um, amount of pulling and pushing on the string to get the ball stable again. Now, you could create rules that say anticipate the cat, distract the cat, or the sort of metaphor for Stalinism here is to shoot the cat. You know, um, use the simple brutal force to keep uh, variety from being introduced into your system that you don't want. So that would be the same thing as, say, enslaving the entire town to build the dam to grow the city. So for what purposes does the city exist? For what purpose are we building the dam? And what, um, what Beer says is that um, when you're coming to designing freedom, and this is indeed what the rest of the episode is concerned with, is how to manage these social systems, the structuring of a system, the purpose of a system, the variety of a system, and the methods for amplifying or attenuating that variety so that the system can achieve its purpose with a minimal amount of harm to other people. And we thus come to the task of designing freedom. 
Now, I also want to point out here that, that Beer is not a utilitarian. He's not you know, engaging in some kind of crude utility calculation. Rather, what he's trying to do is look at the simple how do you bring people under... How do you maximize the freedom of a community to meet its ends without unnecessarily curtailing the freedom of that community? So how do you go about stabilizing the tennis ball without shooting the cat? How do you go about building the dam without enslaving the population? Um, so how does this pertain to thinking about designing social systems? How can we bring this out of hypotheticals? Well, I can say you can think about neoliberalism as a very large variety attenuation system. It promises society, it promises planners and policymakers that it can reduce all variety in society to one thing, the management of risk, which it does either by fi which it does through the financial system, either by financing something or charging an insurance rate for it. Um, and then the requisite variety is ensured at all times by the operation of the price signal in one of two states, either passing risk along to the future through credit or pooling it with others in insurance contracts. So the financial crisis was essentially the failure of neoliberalism to generate requisite variety in the state in the face of the system's states, so extending or refusing credit or insuring something, not being able to cope with the variety in which they were presented, which is that the financialization of the economy was not able to cope with the fact that, well, there was very little being produced. There was, there was that the financialization was a sort of a fiction. Uh, hell, capitalist realism can be understood as a form of psychological variety attenuation. You cannot think of a system working except with reference to property, markets, finance, credit, and insurance. Or even something like immigration controls. You know, immigration controls were reduced very recently. Um, hell, ICE was only founded in the US in the early 2000s. And yet, we are now hearing that it would be impossible to do anything except to engage in this brutality. You know, um, so these things that are considered beyond the pale or outside of the realm of options are essentially a system attenuating variety before it even has a chance to be posed as a possibility. So the question is, for whom are neoliberalism and capitalist realism, these variety attenuators, attenuating variety? What system, in Stafford Beer's definition of a system, not the sort of just woolly definition of uh, the system, are they working for? And, um, you know, you can easily say, well, capital. You know, it's, this is when, when, essentially, when Mark Fisher says that um, we are, that we are living in a dream and capital is the dreamer, um, we, you could put that in a technical cybernetic sense and say that, that the variety of non-capitalist is psychologically attenuated because you can't think about it. Um, so variety att attenuation and amplification is, and this is actually kind of weird, it's the opposite of how I would usually go in one of these episodes, is about much more than ideology. It's actually also a technical problem. So we're interested here in looking at this as a technical problem because Beer was interested in the way that systems such as government departments or corporations fail on their own terms even. For example, government departments collect information about people and they rely on rigid internal hierarchies to process and roll that information up an organization chart where a decision is then made and rolled back down to be implemented by junior department staff, whatever you want to call it. But Beer, as a system designer, was interested in how these hierarchical rigid departments, again, government or corporations, whatever, specifically would say misuse a computer as a variety attenuator when, in fact, um, they, it should be used as a variety amplifier. So I'll give you an example. Um, a computer could be used as a variety attenuator because 
citizens or whoever could be asked to fill in a form with their gender on it and the computer restricts what gender you can put on. It basically says it forces you in to conform into a, into its preconceived model of what a citizen is. A citizen is a man or a woman. It's nothing else. There's no one else sort of, there's nothing else other than that. Whereas a, a sufficiently advanced computer with, say, the purposes of social justice programmed into it would be less interested in restricting um, citizens into boxes of man or woman and more interested in seeing what those citizens then said to it. So the idea is, does the computer exist to solve problems for people or does it exist to solve the problem of people for bureaucracies? And frequently, in fact, almost exclusively, the way in which computers are used by bureaucracies, so says Stafford Beer, is to attenuate the variety of a population that doesn't want to conform to its view of what society is and should be for. So here is... and and. Now, because Beer was writing this in the 70s, he talks a lot about time lag and data aggregation, how um, we are uh, we are making we're we're having to collect a lot of information, process it and then act on it in about a year. Now, weirdly, that problem has sort of been solved. I mean, real time information is in and population level data is increasingly available across like most computer systems in most well, large organizations. And the strange thing is, we can see as we go on through this episode, how the use of those computer systems might still actually be variety attenuating rather than variety amplifying. So here's beer. Now see what has happened to the problems of time lag and aggregation. Instead of accepting these problems and misusing computers in attempt to make adjustments for them by re-injecting variety on the wrong side of the equation, we have magically disposed of the problems altogether. I urge this precept on you. It is better to dissolve problems than to solve them. If time lags are a nuisance, don't have any. Use teleprocessing to eliminate the lag. If aggregation is a nuisance, do away with it. Use computers to attenuate variety more cleverly. So you can see how this would apply to something like CyberSim, where it's very hard to plan an economy if, say, you need to wait three months for a factory um, in the north of Chile to get its information all the way back down south so we can then tell other factories what their demand ought to be. Teleprocessing allows us to, well, eliminate this lag. We can know exactly what the demand is and exactly what the supply is and exactly where all the trucks are. Um, and then if, if aggregating this data is a nuisance because, say, we have to look at all of the... Um, all of the uh, I don't know, um, at motor engines produced across the country and then try to figure out where to put them. We can attenuate the variety more cleverly by, say, uh, looking at um, motor engines uh, divided up by um, places where, by uh, geographically, where there is closeness to a car assembly plant um, and where, car, where there is a high demand for cars, right? So we can put this data together to, um, so that instead of trying to look at motor engine production across the country, we can look at motor engine production where it's a most important and beneficial. That's just an example off the top of my head, but you kind of, I think you kind of get what I'm talking about. 
But this is the problem that beer aimed to solve with Cybersyn in Chile, create a new model for the economy where technology acts as a variety amplifier because it was connected to a system that was more akin to the nerves of a human body, where you trans your, transmit your needs and receive the needs of others, rather than transmitting your needs to a senior authority that then waits to fulfill them according to its own schedule, purposes, reporting requirements, and so on. So the two impediments to progress that beer notes are the availability, note that availability means present and accessible, so exist but are not being made available to us, of funds, and the bureaucracy, which does not want to relinquish its authority over decision-making and information. But what are we aiming to do when we solve these problems? What does this new model of an economy look like other than just, say, CyberSyn 2? Like, what is the conceptual apparatus? What is the model of this economy? So right now, we have a top-down model of centralized control where the purpose of our economic system is finding returns for capital, which means that the attenuation of the variety of workers and citizens, the application of variety for investors. So what Beer says is the vision I am trying to create for you is of an economy that works like our own bodies. There are nerves extending from the governmental brain throughout the country, accepting information continuously. So this is what is called a real-time control system. Why should governments be trying to deal today with last summer's problems, which are, in any event, settled one way or another by now? Then does this not mean that government will be flooded with masses of data it cannot handle? Certainly not. My brain and your brain at this moment are both accepting all manner of sensory input. Everything in the room is registering there, and that is good, because we may need to attend to something quite suddenly. Until that need arises, however, our brains automatically inspect all this irrelevant input and filter out most of it. So, for here's a, a good example would be, as I was saying earlier, with motor engines. Essentially, he's talking about dashboards, which is something that we already have the ability to do with large-scale computer systems. You know, you can, you can say, um, I, I'm, um, it's, a bit, it's a bit People's Republic of Walmart, right? Where in Walmart central control can, can switch as essentially their head office, can say something along the lines of, you know, we've, um, we've noticed that there is a uh, high demand for guns in Texas because Beto O'Rourke has said he's going to come personally collect all of them. So we know immediately that we can call up information about where our guns are and have them shipped to Texas to be sold at a higher price. Um, you know, that's that's terribly, terribly, terribly simple and is real-time population-level information that can be called up and acted upon based on the senses uh, based on the senses of a system being akin to the senses of a person you can do that with alerts whatever you know this technology exists it's just not being made available to us or it's not being made available to us in a way that works especially by bureaucracies that don't really want to be um that don't really want to lose their power over the choke points of distribution so <clears throat> Let's talk also about the cost of social transformation. A world in which people select their own priorities, such as health and education, spending, and so on and so on, would be very expensive, it is said. We need bureaucratic neoliberal elites to make sure that society doesn't, quote, overspend or become non-competitive. So, however, he says that this is complete nonsense, and I'm sure we can all agree, because he says... As far as I can see, the citizens have lost control entirely of the choice of projects that will be undertaken on their behalf, both as taxpayers and as consumers. At best, they play a defensive role in attempting to quash schemes they dislike, and that is a difficult role because it does not carry requisite variety in it. So what do we mean? A citizen's assembly against Trident, for example, quite simply doesn't have the requisite variety because the only tool they have at their dis tools they have at their disposal are voting, organizing, and agitation. Whereas governments, companies, and bureaucracies have enormous variety at their disposal con to continue doing whatever it is that they want. 
So, for example, Save Latin Village is a campaign group attempting to summon sufficient variety to counter the variety of Lendleys, which is being ushered in to uh, Walthamstow to demolish and uh, basically uh, socially cleanse an area of North London by the council. So, Save Latin Village has basically enough variety to challenge them in court, but let's say Lendlease and um, Barnet and what is it, Haringey, Haringey Council, together have enough variety to, well, outspend um, Save Latin Village. More importantly, they also, say, have the variety to, I don't know, seek a national level injunction. They might have the variety to try to discredit the group and so on and so on. I mean, it is quite simply like, look, when this is also why the phrase money doesn't buy happiness always pisses me off is because, well, no, it doesn't necessarily, not in the literal sense, but in, in a system where everything is financialized and things are understood in terms of returns on investment, risk, insurability, and so on and so on, then all money is is a variety amplifier. It just allows you, it allows whatever system you're a part of or whatever system it is a part of to experience more states and therefore be able to solve more problems. Um, so that's why these things are crucially important. And that's why sort of depressingly, that's why the bad guys always seem to win because specifically the bad guys are on the side of property and the system is des- the system we live in is designed to amplify the variety of, proper- of, of property and attenuate the variety of non-property. So taking power and control are therefore the first steps necessary to creating a freer world. And this is especially true with the power of levers increasing the variety of our brains. So what do we mean by this? Here's what Beer says. The fact remains that our own relationship with our environment is governed by bank upon bank of variety attenuators, conveniently reducing a world of increasing variety to the requisite variety of our brains. And we have completely lost control of the processes by which this occurs. So for example, publishing. So when we say... Um, conveniently reducing a world of increasing variety to the requisite variety of our brains and using the example of publishing um, we can say like look uh, um, untold billions of things are happening in the world right now you know you there are certain numbers of people listening to this they might be walking on the street they might be sitting on a bus whatever those aren't going to be necessarily reported on in the media sorry everybody but they're not so the media is publishing in effect has to Pick, has to act as a variety attenuator by picking the things it thinks are important and then telling you what they are because you know a sufficiently advanced brain or a sufficiently advanced computer would have enough variety to understand the entirety of what's going on in the world all the time. It would he could it's like um, Doctor Manhattan from Watchmen just sort of knows everything. He can tell you how many steps are being taken in India by people with uh, an R in their name, right? Right at any given moment because he sort of is supposed to have an infinite brain. But people don't have that and so need to attenuate that information down. And we've outsourced that job to publishing. So Beer goes on and he sort of conflates publishing and education because they're about how you take in information. If education begins the process of constraining our cerebral variety, either benignly, for example, constraining our understanding of what five times four is to 20, or non-benignly by teaching us um, things like means testing as though they are good and necessary, so say contributing to capitalist realism, variety attenuation on behalf of property, etc., etc., publishing, whether by paper or by radio waves, or we can say, you know, by internet, whatever, continues it forever. The editorial decision is perhaps the biggest variety attenuator that our culture knows. 
then the cybernetic answer to this is to turn over the editorial function to the individual, which may be done by a combination of computer-controlled search procedures of recorded information made accessible by telecommunications. In effect, Stafford B. are kind of predicted social media, more or less. Um, Maybe he didn't predict so much the social element of it, but the idea that the individual takes over the editorial function of the information they're taking in is sort of, what, 60% of what we think about when we think of social media. The fact that people are then connecting with one another to share that information, I think Beer would consider particularly cybernetic. But of course, Beer is no fool. He wouldn't say that this is uncomplicatedly good, and he would look at, at the giant companies. Uh, such as Facebook or, to a lesser extent, Twitter, or not because they're better, just because they're less giant, by the way, um, or YouTube or whatever, that are then curating those uh, that content for you, you'd be like, well, okay, we have in some we have amplified the variety of of ourselves, but at the same time, we have also created these new organizations which massively attenuate our variety. So, the YouTube recommendation algorithm is essentially um, a system that is designed to get you to look at ads, which provides you variety amplification by letting you search for whatever you want, but then slowly attenuates variety by using a recommendation algorithm to suggest to you further and further more like radical far right videos. Um, and so you can see that like, and this is of crucial importance, the technology is of secondary significance versus who is in control and what the systems are for. The technology can only enable systems. And what's different about now is that the technology has enabled, is there to give us a radically more, decent, not decentralized, and we'll come on to why that's, that's an important distinction, but a radically more democratic, free, and self-determined system. However, because that technology was developed and is used in the context of a non-free, non-democratic, and non-horizontal system, even when it, it even when it amplifies variety of ordinary people, it at the same time attenuates it in much more important ways. But nonetheless, you can't be too cynical about about social media. I mean, I think a big part of what's fueling the new left, a big rip in capitalist realism, is because you can get your opinion from I don't know us or Novara or Chapo or whatever Twitter accounts you like to follow and so on and so on. You know, like, like you're, you have more access to things that are not controlled by editorial gatekeepers who might be partisans, willingly or unwillingly, of capitalist realism. So these things are complicated the, 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 and they work in unexpected ways. Amplification and attenuation of variety are occurring, but rarely in the way that anyone has really planned. So finding a free system. How do we sustain individual liberty and societary cohesion at the same time, he asks. It is right that this problem should be incessantly discussed, and it is discussed, but the discussion always seems to lead straight into the same disastrous trap, a false dichotomy between the notions of centralization and decentralization. So remember that the human being is the first system that Beer investigates. So he says, for example, if you were personally a fully centralized system, you would need to remember to tell your heart to beat. But if you were a fully decentralized system, you would trot off from you know, listening to this broadcast, or in this case, this podcast, um, to investigate any sound you hear. Neither solution would leave you a viable system for long. So here's what we know. Systems deal with so much variety that if they do not attenuate it, they will not function properly. However, attenuation must be done according to a logical model. 
This means it must regulate how regulation occurs within it, as opposed to regulating everything all the time. That is to say, it must decide centrally on a set of fundamental principles of how things are to take place. So if you're a real commie book club head, you'd be remembering Foucault talking about governmentality or the conduct of conduct, the determination of meta rules. And then you'd be right to remember that. So a meta rule would be a rule about how a rule is made. Um, so at which level of recursion are these bits of regulation occurring? So we said we were going to explain that term. A level of recursion is an autonomous system that operates within the logic of another system. So Beer uses the analogy of a family to explain levels of recursion and how autonomy grows and shrinks. As children are, are grow older, they exert more and more of personal, their personal freedom of action. But this exertation of freedom has to fit into the family's general regulatory model at the higher level of recursion. So the family, the individuals within the family, and then the ranks of individuals in the family, the parents who are largely managers, and the children who are largely managed. Um, but the, the way that the rule might change is from do not eat cookies, which is a... Um, a rule that would be made at a single level of recursion where the parents are in tight control of their family, where the children do not yet have their own subsystem, to then make healthy food choices. So as the children grow older, they are even as they, say, get into their teens or as they move out, the parents are not able to say, uh, do not eat cookies because the child has a higher level of autonomy. Instead, the parent, we can agree that the, that the family system has agreed that we have to make healthy food choices, and then it's up to the child to decide how to make, well, child, the teen, let's say, uh, how to make, I'm just distinguishing between like a three-year-old and a 14-year-old. I'm not saying a 14-year-old isn't also a child. Um, the rule might change from do not eat cookies to make healthy food choices. And then the 14-year-old is able to say, okay, I know I should make a healthy food choice. However, I know I could also eat a cookie. And then if I don't have one later on after dinner, I've still ex exercised moderation, but I've allowed myself to enjoy a cookie. That's a much more pleasant and workable uh, setup than, say, a house in which um, the parents have reacted to the greater autonomy of their teenage child by searching their room every night for cookies and searching the cupboards for cookies and ruthlessly punishing them if they find cookies because they have not allowed this system to exist at a level of recursion. So the push and pull of autonomy and centralization is applicable to, for example, government or corporate departments. And it's quite often screwed up because variety has not been attenuated or amplified properly. So autonomy, where you decide how to meet a highly specified and rigidly enforced sales target, is just centralization with a guessing game attached. And that's why Stalinism was no good. It was an attempt to brutally constrain the variety of the different levels of recursion within this system through the obsessive and brutal enforcement of targets. But it's also why neoliberalism is no good, because it's the same thing, just with the aesthetics of decentralization and freedom. When Tony Blair said that, you know, I always bring this up because it's sort of a good example, that you had to reduce trolley waiting times by a certain, certain amount of time and you can decide how to do that, then the fact is... You're just going to take the wheels off the trolleys and say, I have reduced trolley waiting times. Um, and so what do we what we what we see really is, is that centralization and decentralization almost isn't the right way to look at this. We have to look at this rather in terms of levels of autonomy that levels of recursion are able to solve commonly defined problems with according to a commonly designed set of frameworks. So, for example, um, ensure ensure that patients are seen at a reasonable time. 
uh, within a reasonable time and with the outcome being patient health. A an NHS an NHS hospital knowing that this is its goal and sufficiently resourced to meet it could understand that say um, a department in an a, a trauma unit that's close to like a I don't know let's say a city with lots of cars with lots of commuters might need more people to deal with like car accidents because that's that's how they will are going to accomplish their goal of seeing the most people as quickly as possible whereas an NHS unit that is um, I don't know, say in a much older city, uh, in a city with a high average age, might know that it has to invest in palliative care. So both of these, rather than specifying some target that both of them have to meet, both NHS trusts have the autonomy to determine how they fulfill those goals. Um, and also I say NHS trust just because that's what pops into my head. I Maybe in this future scenario, they wouldn't be trust. They would be something else. Uh, but beer goes on. Um, Rather, or before beer goes on, rather, I'm saying reminder, the fact that Stalinism and neoliberalism are basically the same thing, market Stalinism, we can use Taffer Beer's work on variety of systems and cybernetics to essentially explain fishhook theory. Um, beer goes on. According to the analysis of centralization and decentralization with which we began, it is clear that there should be a major devolution of power. I think it should be open to a community to organize its social services, education, health, welfare, exactly as it pleases, and to accept or reject the initiatives of local innovators. Now, if you don't think about that very much, it actually kind of sounds like right-wing rhetoric. But we know, but we know, knowing Beer, what he means by accept or reject as meaningful choices. Because, for example, privatization initiatives aren't about increasing variety. They're about attenuating variety. The local community has no meaningful say over whether or not its school is made into academy, its NHS trust is closed, or its houses are bulldozed to make way for luxury flats. These innovations also frequently aren't local and are forced in under the guise of modernization, improvement, whatever, whatever, whatever. We're doing this to you. You're not doing, we're not enabling you to do yourself what you think best. So this, this is not the enforcement of market-friendly solutions from above to increase consumer choice, but rather the creation of solutions from the bottom up to increase freedom, much closer to the Preston model than to Herringay Council. So just to conclude, um, what do we mean by designing freedom? So a little while ago, I said that there were two barriers to progress. The first is bureaucracy, and the second is the availability of money. Sorry, this is beer again. But I've dealt with this question before and need only to summarize my answers below. Point one, uh, objections about money do usually not do not represent the actual cost of a project, but the availability of funds for it. Point two, the availability of funds is divided into arbitrary time epochs, which match the requirements of accountancy and, and basically the department or the, let's say, department, corporate or government, and not the needs of the people. Point three, the people are paying for the projects anyway, one way or another, but this fact is disguised from them. Point four, there is as yet no way in which the people can decide on which projects their money should be spent. Point five, there is no reason why spending money according to the wishes of the people should cost more than to spending it according to the wishes of the bureaucracy, provided that the central regulatory model has been democratically composed and is properly understood. Point six, and this is new, the cost of many new societary projects could simply be met from savings made by dismantling the bureaucracy. So how we dismantle a bureaucracy is, of course, requires technology. And, you know, you could talk all you want about fully automated luxury communism and People's Republic of Walmart. But technology is not important in the sense that it will, you know, through asteroid mining, make scarcity obsolete. Rather, what Stafford Beer, and, you know, I, I have my problems with that thesis, but I think it's not something you should really throw out. But 
I think what Stafford Beer is talking about is the ability of information technology specifically to distribute control, automate difficult transactions. When I say transactions, I don't necessarily mean a purchase and sale. I mean a repeated task that must occur in order to make a system occur, a system function, and amplify the variety of organizations that are, well, democratic. However, it is important to ensure that the organizations we're dealing with have the correct purposes built in and aren't opposing this kind of um, new creation of a horizontal freedom. So CyberSyn in Chile can and should be a model. So distribute discretion to different levels of recursion in the system and then supply them with maximum in- and supply and them with and demand from them maximum information that is attenuated intelligently by computers. Um, but that doesn't just mean we should just do it. But it means we should understand what the concepts were that Stafford Beer were, was using when he designed CyberScene in Chile and understand that, like, we're kind of already doing it in Preston. The question is, how can we learn those lessons from these success stories and then how can we apply them further? How can you, how can you de-hierarchize organizations that we've come to believe are natural hierarchies because we know we've seen them work not as natural hierarchies. But how do we... And then the question becomes one of... Well, it's, it's technical. The, the technical question is, how do you organize people in such a way that everyone is well, free? And that's where we go back to the oxymoron of the title, designing, which is constraining, planning, restricting, freedom. So how do we control our activities such that we are under the least amount of arbitrary control, control we don't care for and control that's not for our sake and that doesn't really arise from us. Um, And I think what Stafford Beer has done here, sort of by way of conclusion, is illustrate over the course of an extraordinarily short read, I mean, I think it's less than 40 pages because it's just a series of lecture notes, the, the basic blueprints for how to think about doing this, the concepts you have to use, the un- and an understanding of why authoritarianism, whether it's market authoritarianism or Stalinism, is really only ever going to work for the people imposing that authority. And with this, we have the blueprint for something where authority is much more distributed and it comes from the bottom up. And it's something that I think should be required reading for all socialists so that when we eventually do take power, we don't just sit, I don't know, sit with power in our hands and look nervously back and forth waiting for the forces of uh, of reaction to just come and snatch it back from us. Anyway, so that's been another edition of Kami Book Club. I'm, again, very sorry it was late, but um, I also do hope that you enjoyed it. Uh, as always, thank you so much for listening to us. Um, and if you listen to this as a patron, uh, do tell other people who might not be patrons that it is free on Patreon. It's just this is where we decided to publish it. Um, Let's see, what else? What else is up with us? Not much, I guess. I don't know. Things are going well. Um, I mean, not politically. Or maybe they are by the time this comes out. Who the fuck knows? I'm recording this on Saturday the 19th. So we'll see. (laughs) I'm recording it in the early afternoon. Um, Anyway, I don't know. But thanks for being with us. Uh, And I'll see you soon. (laughs) 